Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says this. So in the old NIVs, it would start with brothers, but the uh, sort of translators feel that it's okay to say, when it says brothers, that you can include sisters too. It's not a sort of, this is not the patriarchy to be smashed. This is an all-inclusive church. So it says, uh, in my NIV, brothers and sisters. If someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Everyone say gently. Oh, I'd like to be in a community that does that, where they restore them gently. But watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in, the, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. That law of Christ that says, uh, uh, love one another. That love each other uh, um, as yourself. And then it goes on. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. And right there, we've got a rebuke of uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook and everything else. Um, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. There is a sense of honour in being uh, spiritually right with God. And it is okay to um, acknowledge that. For each one of you should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who, re- who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. So that's me. And if you get any good things because of this, you get to share it with me. Hallelujah. And it goes on. Um, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh... That's their sort of uh, selfish appetites. From the flesh, they will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Everyone say eternal life. Eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good. How easy is it to grow weary from doing good? Well, Paul tells the Galatians, don't get weary. For the proper time, we will reap the harvest if we do not give up. Paul is saying to these Christians, hang in there. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Have you ever known someone for a long time and then discovered that they're a Christian? And been surprised that they are a Christian. Uh, I've been uh, brought up in a Christian household. So um, I've had that sort of uh, uh, Christian inclination all my life. And I have repeatedly come across people in my lives that uh, for all the time that I knew them, they looked and spoke and behaved like an average pagan. If you were to pick them out of a spiritual lineup, they would not lend themselves to being remarkable. They sleep around, they're bad tempered, they easily hate, they swear, they gossip, they fight, they lie, and uh, they love sowing discord. You know, they're, they're just one of the crew, they're just uh, another uh, uh, unremarkable uh, person in the crowd. 
And then, out of nowhere, they talk about going to church on Sunday. They talk about going to like a, a Christian camp. And they talk about enjoying listening to Christian music. And initially, when you discover that, you can sort of, oh, that's good, another Christian, an ally in my workplace or in my social group or someone else. And, you, and, and the initial reaction can be enthusiasm. But I find, with me at least, that that initial enthusiasm becomes quickly clouded over. I get a little confused because I've known them for a long time and at no point could I see any allegiance to Christ at all in their lives. And then, and uh, this is probably more a uh, confession rather than anything else, resentment creeps in. Because there's that idea of, I'm really trying to be salt and light in these different places and show that loving Jesus makes a difference and that Jesus has got a different kingdom and it's coming and you've got to be ready for it. And this guy or gal is living without any recognition or honouring of that whatsoever. It's Jesus isn't the Lord of their heart. But Jesus seems to be like a superstition or an insurance policy or a weekend hobby something that they get up to, a bit like sort of uh, green laning or archery. You know, something that they do but has no effect on their day-to-day lives. Now, when trouble hits these people where their faith has no obvious impact on their behaviour, and I've heard this time and time again, when trouble comes their way, they look surprised. They are shocked that their life is not one long blessing. And then they start talking about persecutions and trials. Oh, the devil's really getting me this week. Oh, you know what? There's all- so it says this in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Really want to go into the next little bit of uh, 1 Peter 3. But we're going to save that um, uh, for next time. So it says this. Um, So it said that in 1 Peter. And he begins with this kind of rhetorical question. Who's going to do you evil if you do good? That, that just doesn't make sense. Generally speaking, um, that if a Christian does good, they can expect some measure of recognition. And he says, if you are a conscientious Christian, you will, generally speaking, not face trouble. If you are obedient to authority if you are diligent at work, if you are humble in your relationships, then uh, you will be recognised as such. These are the things that are generally um, applauded, even in sinful society. If you are rebellious, lazy and proud, then you're going to be in trouble. You will receive trouble because that sort of uh, attitude and approach is not warmly relished by society at large. The lazy Christian can expect no more blessing than the lazy pagan. 
But if you are a virtuous believer, if you follow the way of Christ, you will often follow, you, you will often find that that following the way of Christ leads to good recognition. If you are obedient to the authorities, generally speaking, um, those authorities will recognise that. If you fill in your tax return fully and properly, you won't receive a bill in the post saying you owe us all this money, you deceiving, lying person. <laughs> Generally speaking. If um, you are conscientious at work, if you follow uh, the rules and you do what you're supposed to, you will generally be recognised at work as someone that honours um, how things work. And your spouses, if you are humble and you serve people and you are loving, your spouses, unless they are a tyrant, they should respond well. If you look after them and make them cups of tea in the morning and think about their needs and uh, this, that and the other, then your spouse should go, I like that, I want to encourage that, I'm going to respond well. Generally speaking, the values that Christ instills in your average believer means that you are quite well prepared to do well in society. Generally speaking. We've all got our exceptions, but generally this means that you will do well out there. Um, I'm a Christian, and I'm still married to my wife. Despite all my failings, hopefully some of the attributes of Christ has meant that uh, my wife hasn't thought, you know what, forget this uh, uh, game, I'm off to someone uh, that's going to treat me better. Hopefully Christ in me has made our marriage better. Um, I haven't been in prison yet, and hopefully that's because as a Christian I honour the laws of the land. And at work, I find that um, Christ in me makes me diligent at my work. And so, uh, many of you may not be able to believe it, but generally speaking, my annual reviews in my uh, uh, workplace are really good. Because I'm conscientious, I'm diligent, I don't... Um, uh, cut corners where other people that don't have Christ would do. I really like this, and there's a, there's a whole range of different people I could have chosen to illustrate this point. But in October 1844, there was a, uh, a young, uh, there was a boy born uh, called John Henry, and he was born to German immigrants in Pittsburgh in the USA. He was a Christian all his life, loved Jesus all his life. He was dynamic in sharing his faith. And he was a Sunday school teacher for over 20 years. And you're like, oh, that's a really nice, normal person that uh, we might have in our congregation. This guy was John Henry Hines. He built up the Hines Company through uh, effort, through diligence, through wisdom, and he also built it through compassion. I don't know what the current company of Heinz is like um, in these things, so that's like a disclaimer. But when John Henry founded it, it was founded on a very Christian understanding of how things work. 
He made good profit, okay? If you work hard, you can expect, generally speaking, to be paid well. If you are lazy, you cannot expect to be paid well, though sometimes our society skews that. Hines cared for the people that worked for him. He pioneered fair treatment of workers. He looked after his guys. He cared for them. And he also, and I'm not to, uh, this, this isn't a, a bugbear of mine, but he was really into food hygiene as well. And uh, the Heinz Company uh, pioneered all sorts of food hygiene stuff. But John Henry Heinz was someone that loved Jesus and that this naturally worked into his um, sort of day-to-day work. And on these principles, he built up the Heinz uh, Company. That became really successful. And Heinz uh, said this, Make all you can honestly, save all you can prudently, and give all you can wisely. If we value um, Jesus and we live out his values at home, at work, and in public, it is perfectly reasonable to hope that our relationships with our spouses will be good, that we will get recognition from our workplaces because uh, we have a conscience about things that other people don't. And it should mean that we have an excellent reputation because we don't have um, a rap sheet for all the times we've been put in prison because we honour all these different institutions. And so when Peter says, um, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good, he's saying it's kind of generally a principle. If you live these things out, you can expect people not to harm you because you are being profitable. Now, he moves on from that statement. Um, Peter recognises that that... uh, pattern of Christians often being applauded for following Christ in these different spheres. It isn't always the case. It is not hard and fast rule. As we were coming uh, to church this morning, uh, my little girl was quizzing me uh, about maths and I got one of her sums wrong and we were sort of unpicking why I got it wrong and it seems I had violated a very basic mathematical principle. And um, the principles that Peter's talking about, they're not mathematical. They're not hard and fast. You can't guarantee them. Sometimes a Christian is going to make the Heinz company and sometimes they're not. You can't put a pound in and you get a a prize worth a pound. The, The comeback to us is going to be different. Peter says if Christians do face evil despite doing good, they are blessed. And most of us will go, well, I'm not too sure about that, Peter. I'd rather be John Henry Hines with his multi-million pound company. And if you are kind of uh, given trouble for being good, then I'm not really sure I'm with you there, Peter. I wonder how you would feel if you were penalised by the law for being honest. You know, you, you held your hand up and the law came down on you like a tonne of bricks. I wonder... If you were, how you would feel if you were ostracised at work because you did things by the book. I wonder how you would feel if you were despised by your spouse because you were generous to your kids. 
these things aren't natural responses to being conscientious, but we all have probably recognised those as experiences in day-to-day life. Often, if that comeback is negative, we can feel a bit hard done by. We can protest at the injustice. How many, uh, I've heard time and time again of, of people claiming uh, um, sort of benefits they weren't entitled to and then when the Christian is up front with their finances, they're penalised and the Christian goes, oh man, I am just, uh, uh, that is just so unfair, the injustice of it all and they ran and rave as this was some new policy. And Peter says, no, it happens. Um, and we get angry and sullen if we do something nice for our spouse and they don't recognise it and reciprocate. And again and again, um, we think it's a law that when we are really, really good, that really good things should come to us. And Peter says, it can be the case, but it is not always the case. And Peter then reminds us of Jesus' own saying on the Sermon on the Mount, that God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And Jesus is saying, blessed are those who get treated badly when they do good. If that happens to us, we should realise that Jesus' perspective is actually right. That it is not good things happen to the good people. It is good and bad things can happen to good and bad people. That it's a little harder to pin down. And ultimately, if we are good and someone treats us badly for that, we can comfort ourselves not in the natural justice of the system, but because um, Jesus recognises that this is often the case. And if it is the case, then uh, you won't go um, and lose out. That Jesus will make up more than the deficit. It is actually a blessing, if you don't receive now, a good return for your goodness. When people are illogical in their response to us, when we are generous and um, thankful, when we are happy, when we serve others with a spring in our step, and they are grumpy, and they tread us down, and they do us evil, it reminds us that there is a spiritual warfare going on, and ultimately we really want God's kingdom to come, because then all things will be in right proportion. And we are longing for God's victory. And so it's not some sort of curse for us to rant and rail about, but it is a blessing from God and a reminder of where our heart truly should be. If we can deal with bad things happening when we are good, um, we know that God loves it. That is a Christian response. If you don't get all narky and hurt and sullen when bad things happen despite you being good, God goes, you've got it. You understand 
me. You understand the world at large. And you know what? You can expect a heavenly inheritance from that. If good comes from good, then that's fantastic. That's like a direct blessing. But if it doesn't, then God rejoices even more because you have understood the way of things, a deeper spiritual truth. And I can think of no better illustration of this um, than Daniel. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6, verse 1, and it says this. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three chief ministers over them, one of whom was Daniel. So Daniel was one of the three most important rulers um, in this kingdom. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Um, Daniel was kind of like um, a believer extraordinaire. He had wisdom, he had conscientiousness, he, uh, though Christ hadn't become incarnate yet, Daniel was living out good qualities And he was recognised for this. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct as government affairs. They tried to find a way to trip him up. But I wonder how many of us this could be said of. But they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Most of my work days, I fall into one of those categories. I'm either untrustworthy, I'm either corrupt or negligent in some way or other. And if you uh, watched me sort of uh, um, with a microscope, you could probably pin me down on one of those things. But Daniel, he rose to the occasion, and under the microscope, he was pure and white. And it's fascinating that the book of Daniel records nothing bad about Daniel. Um, And so it goes on. So these chief ministers and satraps uh, went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce a decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Daniel's behaviour was impressive and exemplary. And you know what? He was recognised by a pagan king as such and he was given one of the three choicest positions um, in the civil service. He was up there as one of the three people in charge of this whole kingdom. Why? Because he worked flipping hard, he had intelligence and uh, he had a a degree of conscience um, that just blew everyone out of the water. The king knew he could trust him. What happens is that despite this natural order of things allowing Daniel to be promoted, all the people around him did not like it. They were jealous and so conspired evilly against him. And do you know what? 
Jesus and Peter look at us through the words of this story and they say, I'm sorry, but this can happen. You can be a really good Christian at work. You can be a really good Christian at home. You can be a really good Christian before the authorities and sometimes you get a bum deal. So let's read on. Daniel chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, gave thanks to God just as he'd done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sunset to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said, remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order. And they brought Daniel and they threw him into the lion's den. Daniel hears that there is a godless law forbidding prayer to his God. What does he do? He does something that's illegal. That's because his affiliation is not to the king, but to God. It is God that has determined how hard he works, and it is God to whom he prays at the end of the day. Now, we don't know Daniel's state of mind. He could have been terrified of the consequences of his prayer, but he knew a conviction in his heart that he had to honour God above uh, the king and his edicts and whoever the Medes and the Persians were. He knew that God was to be honoured above humanity and God was to be honoured above whatever threat humanity had posed to his life. And then, God bless him, God allowed Daniel to be caught red-handed and then the king said, even though you're one of my best civil servants, I am going to put you in the lion's den, just as I promised. I wonder how you guys would feel if you were doing something righteous and proper and God allowed you to be thrown into prison or had hardship come your way. You know, you did something that you knew was good that perhaps is in like one of, uh, uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and then God goes, you know what, I'm going to feed you to the dogs. I'm going to let you go to the lions. You know what? I am not going to protect you from the evil world at large. If you're anything like me, you can curse and whine and argue and protest and say, this isn't fair. What is going on? And this is Peter's point in his letter. This is the point up to this point of Daniel. Daniel and Peter and their saviour Jesus tell us 
that we cannot allow the success or failure of goodness in the world at large to dictate our attitude or actions. You cannot allow the success or failure of your ethics and your morality and your conduct to say whether you're going to continue in them or not. Just because you don't see success when you pray doesn't mean you should stop praying. Doesn't, um, just because you are truthful, and if that lands you into trouble, that does not mean you should stop being truthful. Where our conduct needs to be based not on whether it gets us by, whether it gets us in our prison, whether it um, helps us or not, whether we get promoted or not. Our ethics should be based on what Christ has instilled in us regardless. And some of us sitting here have seen our Christian ethics mean that we get promoted and applauded and celebrated. And some of us, our Christian ethics have just got into trouble and we wonder why we bother sometimes. And Daniel and Peter and Jesus say, do not let your circumstances dictate how well you behave. We need to honour God in all things. We need to honour God regardless and immaterial of our promotions and our demotions. Acting prayerfully, being truthful, being loving and humble, they are ends in themselves. And sometimes, God bless you, you will enjoy uh, some earthly celebration of that. Sometimes you don't. But that does not mean that that should dictate your behaviour. Go, well, God never answers my prayer. You know, I'm truthful and i just seen my finances go down the toilet. And so perhaps I should bend the rules, perhaps I should be less truthful. And Peter and Daniel and Jesus say, no. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 8. says this in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 9. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands, prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plans, but it will not stand, for God uh, is with us. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of his people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah He will be a stone that causes others to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble, they will fall and be broken, they will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. The prophet Isaiah is speaking here in a very complicated um, sort of foreign affairs situation. 
There is the Assyrian Empire and it's expanding westward. And it is threatening Israel. Israel is divided into the north and the south kingdom at this time. And Assyria is expanding into their area. The political wisdom of the, uh, of the north is to be very scared about Assyria coming in. And so what they do is how, what allegiances can we make, what pacts can we make with the other kingdoms to stop Assyria invading our territory? King Ahaz of Judah in the south sees what the northern kingdom is doing and thinks, well, perhaps I should do that. Perhaps I should be worried about Assyria coming over and I need to um, ally myself with the other kingdoms. That is common sense. That is what his uh, secular advisors would be doing. But God tells Isaiah to tell this king... Don't fear Assyria coming in and don't fear when all the nations around you are plotting and scheming to try and defend themselves against them. You don't need to worry about them. I am sovereign. We live in a uh, troubled time with uh, Boris Trump and Putin stirring things up and it's kind of the same message here. Don't let these things get under your skin. God is sovereign. He is in charge and he needs our allegiance more than we need the allegiance of um, other people around us. Now, you may wonder, why on earth have we suddenly brought in this passage from Isaiah? Well, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8 in the verses that we read out. And I really like it because he takes Isaiah's words of reassurance and he says, Christians should know this too. You will be blessed, have no fear, and don't be troubled. When it's all kicking off and you think you're, um, you're going to be before a firing squad, don't sweat it because God is sovereign. And when... BBC World News is terrorising us with whatever scary thing is happening at the world at large. Isaiah speaks to us and Peter reminds us of Isaiah's worth and go, take it easy, guys. Now, what I really love about what Peter does with this verse is not that he just quotes it, but in Isaiah's original words... He mentions Jehovah. He mentions God. You know, this formal word for uh, the God of Israel. You know, it's a word that was so revered by the Jews that they would often not use it and they would find a replacement so that they couldn't get it wrong or misspell it or something else. And Peter um, just takes this Jehovah and he just cuts it out and replaces it with the word Christos. If you were a Jew, that is a massive deal. He is saying Jesus can be used in equivalent words as God himself. Peter, the man who lived alongside Jesus for three years, ate with him, prayed with him, worshipped with him, is 
absolutely convinced that Jesus is not just a kind man, not a good teacher, but he is God incarnate. And so that whenever he comes across Jehovah or Yahweh or Elohim or or something from the Old Testament, he can just go, oh yeah, that's Jesus. That is Peter's Christology. He loves Jesus so much and he understands that Jesus is not just a person like you and I, but that is God with us. And so he can change this Old Testament wording to something that refers to Jesus and goes, that's who we serve. Friends, our scripture makes it plain again and again that this humble, feet-washing Jesus who died on a cross is creator, sustainer, saviour and coming king. We have this extraordinary Christology, this incredible understanding of who Jesus is that differentiates us from every cult and sect out there and is the core of orthodox, orthodox Christianity. And I really hope that we understand the importance and centrality and high value of Jesus, that we can see that he is God himself. Lastly, turn to uh, Colossians chapter 1. I quickly run out of words when I'm kind of ad-libbing about Jesus, but Paul wonderfully doesn't. And he says this in, one, in, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God and firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And I really hope you can hear, Jesus is uh, God and that he is sovereign over everything. He is someone to be worshipped and he is someone to be leaned back in and trusted. And it goes on. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased, delighted, dead chuffed, to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on that cross." Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. For Paul, Jesus is everything. For Paul, Jesus is God incarnate. He is the exact image of God. God the Father allowed his fullness to dwell in him. He is the beginning. He is the head of the church. He is the be all and end all. And if you love Jesus, when you read Paul's words in Colossians, it should be like throwing petrol on a bonfire. There should be an explosion of our souls in, oh, that is good to hear. 
That is fantastic. You know, I recognise that. In fact, I live my life by that. In fact, Jesus is awesome. And I'm sure it's all that Tim can do is to stop bursting out on guitar playing a worship song in response to Colossians because it is an incredible high understanding of Jesus. And it should reverberate in our souls that Jesus is amazing. Now, Peter says that we are to ensure that Jesus of Nazareth is revered as Lord and God in our hearts during undrust troubles. So, when your spouse um, or partner uh, gives you grief when you are kind to them, when uh, revenue and customs give you a bigger bill because you've been honest about your finances, uh, when your work colleagues speak badly about you because you are conscientious and truthful in your conduct, you remember Jesus is enthroned on you and he is the middle of you. And compared to him, nothing else uh, can shine a light to him. If anyone or anything else is held as the ultimate good in our hearts, we will stumble and fall and we will be unable to deal with whatever difficulties come our way. But if the high king of heaven is enthroned in our hearts, we win in the end. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, we continue to be thankful for these words of Peter. We thank you that they've been preserved by faithful Christians for 2,000 years and Lord God, as we read them today in 2019, we pray that we would take them on board and we would learn from Peter's experience and his wisdom. Lord God, um, I pray that we would exemplify the properties of Christ in our daily life. And Lord God, I pray um, that we would uh, just enjoy the favour of those around us as we live him out, as we are conscientious and truthful and Lord God I pray that when that doesn't happen that we wouldn't whine and moan and groan and whinge that it is unjust but we would um, take on board what Jesus said and understanding it is a blessing of sort that Lord God that we can look to a coming kingdom when all this trouble will be done away with. And Jesus, I pray this, more, this, this afternoon that each one of us would have you properly enthroned in our hearts. Lord God, we um, agree with Paul, this high view of Christ and his incomparability to every other human. And, and we thank you for you sending him. And Lord God, I pray that he would be the most cherished, valued person in our lives. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.